0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pediatric infectious disease specialist offers advice about whether kids can safely return to school during the pandemic.
1: The things that I think about um, first, is my uh, child otherwise healthy? Um, uh, am I, as, a, as an adult, a uh, healthy person? Is it safe for me uh, to be around people who might come into contact with, with COVID? We'll
0: ask her what schools and parents can do to help reduce the spread of the coronavirus. And a pediatrician and public health expert talks about the dangers of lead poisoning, which are still a
2: concern for children. The most urgent problems that we worry about in kids is that it causes anemia, it affects the blood cells. um, And then the other sort of more long-term effect is that it affects the brain.
0: All that plus a visit from The Healing Muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink air, your chance to explore health, science and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll talk about what parents and schools can do to help reduce the spread of the coronavirus. Then we'll hear about the dangers of lead poisoning. But we'll start with advice from a pediatric infectious disease expert about whether it's safe for kids to return to the classroom. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Back to school season is upon us. Some college students have already headed back to campus, and students in elementary and secondary schools are preparing. Here to provide some advice for parents, students, and teachers is Dr. Yana Shaw. She's a pediatrician who specializes in infectious disease and a parent of school age children. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Shaw. Hello, Amber. Thank you for having me. I realize the answer to my first question might be different depending on where someone lives, but is it safe for kids to return to the classroom?
1: Yeah, well, that's an excellent question. And I get that question quite often these days. Um, you know, we are fortunate to live in a county where we have been uh, able to mitigate the transmission of this virus uh, very well. In fact, our test positivity rate, uh, which is something we use to measure activity of this virus, is very low, it's less than 1%. Um, So one could argue we are in the best position to open schools and do so safely, um, as long as we continue to monitor the virus activity and implement the best safety practices um, at schools. So you
0: said positivity rate, that, help me remember what that number is. It has to do
1: with how many people are getting tested, right? It has to do with the number of people who test positive um, in the county. So the county now tests people um, because we have an improved capacity of COVID testing. So, and then we look at the number of uh, positives um, out of those all people who were tested. And the state has issued um, very clear guidance in terms of what is required for schools to be open. And uh, for New York State, it is less than 5% positivity. Um, here in central New York, we have the second lowest positivity rate uh, following uh, North Country. So
0: North Country, well, you, uh, that's what I was going to ask you about, the differences potentially between urban, suburban, and rural areas, the North Country's mostly rural, right? Does that have
1: something to do with their positivity rate being so low? It is quite possible. You know, the uh, city's congestion and overcrowding is um, fertile soil for transmission. Uh, So clearly, you know, areas where people's homes are more distant and people have less opportunity to be exposed to each other due to just the um, rural nature of that um, makeup um, certainly helps to mitigate the transmission of the virus. Um, so it's it's quite possible that the um, uh, rural nature of uh, North Country and Central New York um, areas helps to mitigate the transmission of the virus.
0: When we think about whether it's safe to go back to the classroom, does it depend upon the, like, the physical size of your school building?
1: Yes, it does. Um, the New York State Department of Health and uh, Department of Education issued uh, guidance for safe opening of schools. And one of the recommendations is to make sure that the children's desks are spaced six feet apart. Um, so, you know, not all schools can do that. I mean, they may have a smaller classrooms, they may have more children. So all those restrictions have to be taken into consideration before school can open for in-person learning.
0: So how do you as a pediatrician counsel parents to decide whether to send their child back to the classroom? What, what sorts of things do they need to consider for their own individual situation?
1: so for me as as you know amber, I do have three children as well they are school age children one is college bound and they all are going back to school this this fall so the things that I think about um, um, are are several uh, right so first is my uh, child otherwise healthy um, uh, am i as a as an adult a uh, healthy person um is it Say for me uh, to be around people who might come into contact with with COVID. Um, um, The next thing one needs to consider is um, the child's ability to learn online, right? We know that online learning in general um, has not been very effective uh, to help children learn, especially as children... Um, get younger, it's it's even harder for them uh, to learn, and parents had to step up to help their children. For families where both parents work, for example, that's a very challenging task. So the second thing again to consider: uh, do children want to do? Do your children want to go back to school? Um, are they uh, good learners uh, through uh, distance learning? Um, uh, The other um, thing to consider uh, is um, how uh, safe um, the school environment appears to be, Uh, you know, what are those steps that the schools have taken or your school district have taken to keep your children safe? You know, talk to your uh, school administrators or research their websites um, to alleviate some of your concerns um, about uh, sending your child back to school. It is my experience with the schools um, in uh, our county that they all are taking this very seriously and the state also reviews the the district's approaches to return to school in fall. Um, So I I am confident, certainly in my school district, uh, that um, um, it will be a safe environment for children to return. But if a child
0: has an underlying health condition, if I hear what you're saying, they maybe need to talk to their own pediatrician about whether it's safe to go back.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, if you have a child or you yourself are um, you know, someone who might be at increased risk for severe COVID, you have immuno you know, immunocompromising condition, or you have diabetes, you have, you know, other health issues. Please talk to your provider, talk to your child's pediatrician um, and um, decide together uh, whether sending your child back to school is the best for your family, because each family will have unique challenges and has unique resources or lack of um, to uh, to support um, in classroom learning.
0: This is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Yana Shaw, a pediatric infectious disease expert and a parent of school-aged children. The American Academy of Pediatrics has gone on the record about the importance of in-person learning, not just for learning's sake, but for a child's social development. Um, but the group is also tracking the number of children who become infected and seriously ill when they go back to school. How do? In- pediatric infectious disease experts like yourself balance that risk and, and benefit?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's um, a that's very uh, challenging question, right? In general, we humans um, are not very good in sort of measuring risk, right, and assessing risk. We often are driven by fears, um, and uh, we fear things that are new and unknown to us. So the COVID pandemic is a great example of how Uh, a fear can drive our decisions that may not be always rational. However, um, to answer your question, you know, um, the decision to send your child back to school, as we have discussed earlier, should be sort of grounded in some some facts. Um, It's, you have to consider the local transmission of this virus. Um, One needs to consider your individual risk to this infection. Um, As a child, as a parent, and one also has to really, really uh, value carefully the importance of in classroom learning for your child. As you mentioned, uh, you know, children um, need uh, social interactions for their healthy development. Uh, schools not only provide um, educational environment for our children, they provide structure, they are the daycare for working families, they provide meals, and they assist children who may not be able to learn um, on their own or with their parents, such as special needs children. So all those things need to be taken into consideration um, to help uh, the parent uh, to decide uh, whether to send the child back to school. And thankfully, schools have been very accommodating. Uh, Numerous schools have sent out surveys asking parents uh, whether they would prefer online learning or um, these hybrid models that allow children to return back to school.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the things that schools can do and are doing to reduce the spread of the virus. Can you sort of go over the bare minimum that schools need to do in terms of keeping kids safe? Of
1: course, yeah. So there are, uh, for schools, there are um, five basic principles that the schools will follow to keep children safe. Uh, number one, children will be required to wear masks, face covering. Uh, they will have to be physically distanced. Uh, the desks will be put you know, six feet apart to make sure the virus cannot jump easily from a child to child. Um, the children will be required to avoid, um, you know, close contact. Crowding will be will be minimized at schools, and the schools, whenever possible, will be trying to um, uh, provide outdoor education if possible at all, or ensure that the ventilation in the classroom is uh, is safe um, to minimize the risk of uh, transmission of the virus in the classroom.
0: So outdoors might work for uh, several weeks, maybe a few months into our season, until, the, until it gets wintry. Um, are, are you hearing about schools that are setting up like tents? And, and why is outdoors better than indoors?
1: Yeah, so outdoors is better for this virus because it um, allows increased circulation and increases the probability of the virus landing in your nose, in your mouth, maybe in your eyes. So it minimizes the risk of infection. You know, because we are in central New York and winter uh, comes upon us quite early, um, leaving windows open, for example, when possible during winter is one um, other way to help uh, the classroom air circulation. So children don't necessarily need to be outdoors uh, when that's not possible, but leaving windows open when possible is another uh, helpful uh, tactic uh, to improve air circulation. In addition, a lot of schools have um, um, invested in their uh, school ventilation system uh, to help um, to increase air circulation and minimize transmission.
0: We've heard about uh, music classes and sports, things of that nature, extracurriculars, sort of, that are having to be canceled. How long is that going to go on?
1: Yeah, so those activities have been canceled, you know, choir, physical, or um, canceled because they are events or activities that increase risk of transmission. Um, It's not clear for how long they will be canceled. I would um, guess that at least for a semester uh, for, you know, for uh, the first and second marking period. And um, the uh, situation will be reassessed uh, probably early next year.
0: What happens if a student or a teacher tests positive? what happens to that classroom and
1: or the school itself? Yeah, so those are um, concerns that obviously uh, have to be ironed out before school opens and the local department of health will guide those efforts. Um, you know, the the risk of exposure to someone really depends on uh, the extent of the exposure, how long the infected person uh, was around others, was the person who tested positive uh, wearing masks uh, properly, uh, was the person wearing the mask uh, during all times. So all those um, individual uh, factors have to be taken into consideration to determine uh, whether there was risks to others. Or, uh, or not. Um, so I will defer to the local Department of Health Management of those exposures as um, those individual unique situations will have to be um, carefully assessed.
0: Now some teachers are very worried about catching this virus from students and they have a lot of experience catching colds and flus from their students. Do they have reason to be concerned or is Is this particular coronavirus behaving in some different way from other viruses?
1: Yeah, so I do understand uh, teachers are concerned, um, especially if you're an older teacher or you have underlying medical conditions that puts you at greater risk for severe disease. Um, Those are real and legitimate concerns. This virus really doesn't behave differently compared to other uh, cold viruses, Um, you know, since you ask. uh, Flu, for example, right, is another virus that is transmitted through respiratory route and can be very dangerous, uh, not only to children, but also adults. in terms of protection for teachers to feel safer, you know, they will be required to wear a mask. And it might be uh, that for some teachers, they will choose also to wear face shields. You know, in healthcare, we routinely uh, or universally require that our staff wears uh, face masks, earlobe masks, and we also recommend uh, face shields as a standard uh, way to protect yourself uh, from exposure. So for teachers who are concerned um, and would like the extra layer of protection using a facial may alleviate um, um, the risk and, and the fear. We have to take a quick
0: break, but we'll be right back with more from Dr. Yana Shaw. Back with Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Yana Shaw about the return of students to classrooms. Well, let's talk about what are some of the things parents can do to help their kids and their schools minimize exposure. For instance, should parents drive their kids to school rather than put them on a bus? Does that help?
1: Yeah, so school buses um, um, may be a challenge for some families, especially if those families live uh, far away from school and child will have to be on a bus for extended period of time, let's say more than 15 minutes. Um, So um, if you are able to drive your child to school, it is a safer alternative. you know schools will be required, uh physical distancing on the buses as well children will not be able to sit close to each other and um the bu- uh, bus drivers will do their best to keep the windows open also to uh, improve the air circulation um so they'll do their best uh, to provide a safe environment as possible but if a parent wants to minimize risk and can drive the child to school driving um, you know them would be Uh, would be would be better Um, in terms of what other interventions they can do uh, is make sure that you do not send a sick child to school if your child has even mild symptoms you know is feeling achy your child is um, tired more than usually has fever has scratchy throat headache you know vomiting diarrhea cough all those symptoms that are consistent with COVID. Please do not send your child to school because you are uh, you're exposing others to the virus that um, that can spread pretty quickly in a, in a school setting.
0: What about lunch? Is it better or safer for a, a child to bring the food with them or to buy the school lunch?
1: So, uh, bringing your own lunch probably is best option. Again. Fomites, or um, essentially a transmission of this virus through food or surfaces, does not appear to play um important role um, in this pandemic, although transmission has been documented. Uh, so if you want to minimize the risk completely, you know, preparing um, a lunch for your child would be the way to go.
0: Do you need to send your child to school with hand sanitizer in their backpack with lysol wipes? I mean, how much of this is up to the the student?
1: So the teachers will have uh, hand sanitizers and wipes in the classroom, but teaching your child healthy habits such as washing hands before you eat um, and therefore you know providing them with a the hand sanitizer. Uh, will ease that process and make that school environment uh, safer. So if you can, please send your child to school with a hand sanitizer and teach them how to properly use it. Now we
0: mentioned earlier about some teachers might wear a face shield. I wonder, do eyeglasses offer any sort of protection from the virus getting
1: into the eyes? So eyeglasses do not. Uh, eyeglasses would be an effective way uh, to protect oneself uh, from this virus. So if you have any concerns and you might be at increased risk and you are returning back to school to teach, consider wearing a face shield in addition to, to mask.
0: Now, how often do you think kids need to be tested? Do you, Do you think only if they have an exposure or if they have symptoms? or should we be testing kids routinely?
1: So we currently do not recommend routine testing of all children, and that means asymptomatic children, children who have no exposure or have no symptoms. Um, The reason being is that the usefulness of that approach um, is limited, and we also want to preserve our testing capacity uh, to make sure we have enough tests for those who who really need them, those who have symptoms or uh, were exposed. Um, So... um, The testing um, alone um, will evolve over time, but as of today, we do not recommend routine testing of asymptomatic people.
0: Do you think that families need to maintain sort of a study area at their home? Does it seem like they have to be prepared to sort of switch on a dime to go back
1: to virtual learning? That's an excellent point. Amber, I think it's really important that parents do have a backup plan in case the school will have to switch to online learning only, and um, that uh, means that they um, ideally would have a study designated area. They will have a backup childcare for their children if parents have to work um, uh, and cannot remote and cannot work remotely. Um, You know, it's quite possible that um, each school will have a different threshold um, in terms of closing if they have a case or two. Um, And also along with the Department of Health Guidance, um, the recommendations uh, may change from school to school. So um, it's really important that that parents are prepared to having to switch to online learning on a very short notice.
0: Have you heard of any creative solutions to these? Uh, what have to be sort of elaborate plans for backup childcare? Um, what What do you, What have you heard that might that sounds like it would work best?
1: So the approaches to um, uh, sort of safe um, learning and backup daycare um, are. Um, ongoing, and people share them as they, as they sort of come up with those ideas. You know, one of those that I, that I really like, especially for younger children, are those where the classrooms sort of have several different parts, right? You have a small group of children, maybe four to five, that um, are restricted to a certain part of the classroom, and those children do not interact with others, Um, So this type of approach is clever because it um, allows you to minimize risk of transmission in case there is a child who has a symptomatic infection um, and subsequently will go on developing symptoms. And that approach will minimize the risk of transmission to other children, even in the same classroom. It also allows public health professionals to identify, track, and trace those individuals because that child, the case um, itself would have a very limited exposure to others. So sort of creating these pods, these social learning pods in the classroom is one approach. And maybe doing the same with a childcare, you know, try to limit the childcare to few individuals, because if one comes in with an infection, then you can easily uh, tests um, identify and isolate those who were um, um, exposed and infected.
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with pediatric infectious disease expert, Dr. Yana Shaw. She's also the parent of school age children. Now, I know our understanding of this disease is evolving in real time since it's new, so please bring us up to date with how
1: much of a threat COVID 19 is to children? So COVID-19, as you know, can infect children. Children, thankfully, though, uh, tend to have um, very mild disease. They are mostly either asymptomatic, meaning they show no symptoms, or they get a mild infection. Cough, cold, scratchy throat, feeling tired, having fever very, very small proportion of children will go on developing more moderate or severe disease that will require hospitalization. And this trend has been consistent since um, the advent of this uh, pandemic, since we have been tracking disinfection in children, you know, for children and um, physicians' experience in China, Europe, and the United States. So are children more likely to be asymptomatic carriers? than adults are uh, that's correct. It does appear that children are more likely to carry this virus and have no symptoms. And then a while ago we heard
0: about children who developed this it was an inflammatory illness involving multiple body systems. Is that still a concern for for some children?
1: Yes, so what you're referring to, Amber, is called multi-inflammatory systemic um, reaction in children uh, that is um, related to COVID. It typically appears several weeks after uh, infection, and the infection, you know, uh, could have been asymptomatic infection. It is a very rare complication of COVID in children. Um, We have not seen as many cases now since New York is uh, past the peak of this pandemic, right? We have seen cases probably two to four weeks after its peak um, and have not really uh, seen many since we have such a low circulation of the virus in our community.
0: We've heard about some adults who recover and then go on to have sort of lasting repercussions uh, from COVID, Are we seeing that in children who have sort of a mild course of illness, but then they have some lingering
1: symptoms for a long period of time? Um, So I haven't seen any studies that would address this question, so I will have to sort of... um... Stand by answering this one and maybe on an, our next segment, we can talk about if there's any more information. But what I can speak of is um, the mis the multi-inflammatory system um, uh, condition in children uh, where researchers have looked and um, at least in short term, those children appear to recover uh, really nicely and not to have a lasting sequelae or complications. Let me
0: ask you what happens when a vaccine becomes available. There's some parents who oppose any sort of vaccine, but in this particular case with COVID, there may be parents who fear that what's being developed is being rushed, and so they're going to worry about whether the vaccine is safe. What are your feelings about the vaccines that are in development?
1: So, so far, there are over 160 vaccines in development. Uh, Just a small number of them has uh, made it through the rigorous processes. uh, And a a few have emerged as possible candidates. You know, I I am concerned about the rushed reduction. It's understandable that um, we want um, effective and safe vaccine very quickly to help to control the spread of this virus. Uh, But again, um, it's critical that we follow our very rigorous uh, uh, process for uh, vaccine approval in the United States. Um, So it's it's likely that the reason why this is rushed and it appears to be rushed is that we have um, managed a vaccine rollout Um, in uh, parallel paths, right? Historically, when we develop uh, vaccines in the United States, we go through stages, um, uh, clinical phase one trial, phase two, phase three, um, and then we have post-licensure monitoring. But in this case, we are doing several steps at the same time, and that might be the sole reason why this has progressed very rapidly and did not compromise the uh, safety process in place. Um, So I think it will be critical once a license is uh, ready for approval that those are reviewed based on the same standards we use for other childhood vaccines or adult vaccines.
0: Well, on the subject of vaccines, considering the flu vaccine this year, do children need to get the flu shot this
1: year? Absolutely. You know, flu is a threat not only to children, but it's threat to adults as well. We cannot forget that flu kills uh, between 100 to 200 children every year, and those are healthy children uh, or children who have underlying medical conditions. But flu remains a threat uh, to us and kills adults and children every year. We have a safe an effective vaccine that can protect you from severe influenza and death. So I would really strongly encourage parents to vaccinate themselves and their children.
0: And the flu vaccine is not going to offer any protection against COVID, but it's also not going to cause you to be
1: more susceptible to COVID, correct? That's correct. Yeah, a flu vaccine only protects against influenza, uh, will not help with COVID protection, and will not uh, make you more susceptible to, uh, to COVID. You know, I think it's really important we do our part and do our best to get our community as healthy and as safe, which means influenza vaccination, if we see a second wave of COVID-19 uh, because if we put COVID 19 in our community and influenza on top of it, our healthcare capacity will be overwhelmed.
0: Well, this has been very informative. I want to thank Dr. Yana Shaw, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. What you need to know about lead poisoning next on Upstate's HealthLink On Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Lead poisoning remains a concern for children in particular. I'm speaking about this with Dr. Travis Hobart. He's an assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate who also specializes in public health, and he's also the medical director of the Central Eastern New York Lead Resource Center. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Hobart.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to do it. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, let's get specific. Um, Lead poisoning, is that a concern in rural areas or cities or both?
2: Uh, Well, it could be a concern in both. Um, uh, We certainly see more cases of it in cities um, for a couple reasons. First of all, because there are more people in cities. Um, And secondly, um, because it's much more likely that people are renting homes in cities, and we more often see it in rental homes than in uh, than in homes that are owned. Um, that's that's a, a matter of the, the, the nature of rentals that the landlord doesn't always um, clean up the, the paint as well as, as people do in their own homes. Um, but that like said, it, it definitely is a, an issue for rural areas too. So I thought that lead paint, I thought that was tied
0: to like old construction, older homes, but do you could it still be a, an issue in new construction?
2: Uh, no, it's generally it is older homes, as you thought. Um, the, we banned um, the U.S. Uh, banned lead paint in 1978. Um, so any any house built after 1978 doesn't have lead paint in it. Um, there are some other potential sources uh, in the home, though. So, so it doesn't mean that if you live in a new home, you're totally free from risk. Um, there are some uh, piping, uh, water pipes that that have lead in them, even still today, a little tiny bit, um, but th- that was banned a little bit later. Um, so sometimes the pipes in the homes have lead. That's typically not as much of a problem here in Syracuse as as it is. In, you might remember in Flint, Michigan, where they weren't treating the water appropriately. In Syracuse the water is generally treated appropriately for that um, to keep the lead from leaching out of the pipes, and it then, then, then it stays in the pipes. Um, and then finally, um, there are things in the home that might that might uh, might expose you to lead as well. So the things that we see sometimes are uh, certain types of foods. Often it's a you know a spice or something like that that's brought from a different country. Uh, maybe a family member brings it or or sends it to uh, to them, um, or it's you know uh, uh, so so then the people in the in the home might eat the spice and that has been contaminated with lead. Um, somehow, and they can get lead exposure that way. Um, and then sometimes we see it in toys um, that that kids are chewing on the toy or, or something like that. and it might have lead in it. Um, and then finally, the other thing that we sometimes see are occupational exposures. So if the parent is working in a in a field where they either still use lead paint, which they do in some construction, um, particularly bridges um, are painted with lead paint. Still, um, so if, if someone's doing that, or if someone is doing construction and tearing down old houses, um, or if um, someone works with uh, car batteries frequently on um, some other, some other sources that the parent might be exposed, um, which may be bad for the parent, but also that might get on the clothing. And then if the child doesn't take the, clo- if the, if the parent doesn't take the clothes off when they get home and the child gets into the clothes or, or the parent tracks it into the house then the child can be exposed that way. Um, so, so those are some ways that you could get it even in a new home. So lead
0: is a naturally occurring metal. So what does it do when it gets into the body?
2: Yeah, so, so the, the main uh, problems for lead, well, there, there are numerous. It affects numerous organ systems. Um, the main problems that we, the, the most urgent problems that we worry about in kids is that it causes anemia. It affects the blood cells. Um it sort of takes the place of iron, which our body normally needs and and it uh it it causes anemia because the cells don't work well when they have lead in them instead of iron it it sort of poisons the, the normal processes that the cells go through um so they get anemic um and then the other sort of more long term effect is that it affects the brain um and and so that's the more concerning effect um is that is that you get uh, uh, Permanent effects on the brain potentially, um, or it can affect attention and memory and learning, and these are all especially crucial for developing children because their brain is going through rapid, rapid development process, Um, and if those processes get um, interrupted by the by the lead, then that can be a lifelong, uh, you know, lifelong problem.
0: So that's why this is more of a concern in children than than necessarily in
2: adults. Right, right, exactly, and and the other the other thing that's sort of a cruel, uh, cruel fate of nature is that that children actually absorb it better than adults do, uh, for some reason in the in the intestines, um, and that is particularly true if if children are iron deficient because as I said it, it, it kind of mimics iron. So if someone is not getting enough iron in their diet, which we know that a number of people, especially people who are, who are impoverished and living in in cities, may not be getting a healthy diet. Um, they're not getting the iron that they need, so they're iron deficient, and then their body absorbs even more lead than it would if they if they had a, if they had a good nutrition, um, and so and then on top of that, um, it's also absorbed more readily. Once it's in the body, it's absorbed more readily into the brain in children than it is in adults. So so it's really uh, kind of a cruel cruel twist. Um,
0: so how does, it, how does it get into the body? Because you, you mentioned how kids may chew on something. Does it have to go in through sort of the mouth, or can you breathe it in through your lungs? Or does it so, absorb through the skin?
2: No, so yeah, so it doesn't go through the skin, but you can get it through the mouth or the lungs. Um, most of the kids are getting it through the mouth, and that's because of the nature of children. They're crawling around in dust, and the, the lead paint has come off the walls in, in dust form or flakes and they're crawling around, getting it on their hands, on their toys, and then putting their them in their mouth as, as you know, one and two year olds do regularly, they're putting things in their mouth. That's sort of normal development for them. Um, and so so they put it in their mouth and then they, they ingest it that way. Now you can get, it, you can absorb it through the lungs as well. That happens uh, more often if someone's doing construction or like sanding the paint off the walls or something like that. Sometimes we have people who are doing their own home painting and, and they want to get the old paint off and they're sanding it down and not realizing that it has lead paint in it. And so if they use an electric sander, it can make the dust really um, thick in the air and people can absorb it through their lungs that way.
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Travis Hobart about lead poisoning. In July, the Syracuse Common Council approved a law that will let city code inspectors test homes for lead paint and Issue violations if they find lead paint. How much do you think that this will help?
2: So, so I, I think this law is, is going to help a lot. I mean, it's certainly not going to make things go away overnight, um, but I do think it's gonna it's gonna make a big difference because uh, one of the one of the loopholes in the in the sort of inspection process was that they couldn't cite for lead um, in the home, and so when people decide to rent their homes. Um, you know, when landlords are trying to rent their homes to people, um, they, they didn't necessarily like the homes would make it through the inspection without being cited for lead, And then, and then, you know, families would move in and children would be exposed. Um, so this is a great step forward and I, and I kind of advocated for it and, and uh, worked with the, you know, the city council members, particularly Joe Driscoll about it, um, about trying to get it, get it passed because, um, this would. Landlords will be accountable to make sure that the lead is gone before uh, before children um, or anyone moves into into those homes. And I think that's that's really uh, primary prevention, which is what we want. When we see a kid in the, in the office and they've already been exposed, it, it's too late. You know, when we when we test their blood for lead, um, it's too late. They've already been exposed. The damage has already been done to some degree. And so this is hopefully getting the um, you know getting the problem out of their home before they get exposed to it.
0: Well, I wanted to ask how you go about diagnosing or how do you tell if someone, a child has been exposed to lead? Uh, Is it all through blood work?
2: Yeah. So, so lead poisoning is, is sort of, it does cause symptoms. It can cause symptoms, but they're very big symptoms, especially at lower levels. There's kind of symptoms like maybe a headache, maybe stomach pain, maybe constipation, things that kids complain about all the time. Um, so, so there's no real, there's no real easy way to diagnose uh, lead poisoning at at very low levels. Now, if it gets to very high levels, then people have seizures and go into a coma, and you know, um, sometimes with chronic exposure, there are certain other signs. But, but that's not what we rely on um, because. Uh, because we miss a lot of people and we know that even low levels of exposure are dangerous for children. There's no safe level. Um, so we want to find out before any symptoms show up. Um, so so to do that, uh, the state of New York has required that all children get tested at the age of one and again at the age of two. Okay so so that they so that we catch this in, in the kids that are otherwise asymptomatic the parents don't know the doctor doesn't know until we do the blood test.
0: So this is all kids no matter where they live or whatever conditions they may be exposed to it's just blanket across the board everyone gets tested.
2: Yes that's correct. Yeah because even even if you know that someone lives in a new home well sometimes you don't realize that they're going to grandma's house or they're going to a daycare or a babysitter who lives in an old house and they might be exposed in other, other sources. Um, so, so we just, uh, the state has decided that um, because many of the homes in New York State and, and something in, in the county, it's something like 70 percent, 70 or 80 percent of the homes are built before 1978. And in the city of Syracuse, it's over 90 percent of the homes are built before 1978. Um, so the state decided, and that's true for other cities in New York as well, it's not just Syracuse. Um, so the state uh, decided that the risk was, was too high and we needed to make sure we caught it, you know, caught it early. So we tested.
0: Do you ever see newborns or can babies be exposed in utero to lead? Or do you ever see them test positive on at birth? Uh
2: yeah, so so babies uh, can be exposed. The the lead does cross the placenta and then get into the baby if the mother has has exposure. And so we do see that sometimes. And we recommend that uh that OBGYN's test pregnant women for lead too, because that's really the only way to know in advance um, if you test the mother. And so unfortunately we, we, we do see that sometimes. And so it, it can often be, uh, I mentioned some people doing home renovations. Well, when you're pregnant is a lot of time when people wanna paint the nursery and do do that sort of thing. Um, and so so that does happen sometimes that pregnant moms get exposed that way, they're sanding walls or things like that. Um, and then also some pregnant women have um, uh, pica behavior, which is when they're eating non-food items. And, and nobody quite knows exactly why people have pica, um, um, but, but we know that it happens more often in pregnant women. So, so if, if pregnant women are doing that, they might be eating the paint chips themselves or eating soil that, that might have lead in it from paint on the outside of the house or something like that, and they get exposed that way. And so when that happens, then we want to check the baby as well as soon as the baby comes out. And usually the baby's level is about, uh, about the same as the mother's, maybe a little bit less, um, and then we kind of monitor that from there. Um, so
0: how does a pediatrician care for a child who's been lead exposed?
2: uh so so the 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 main thing that we do the most important thing is to is to remove the source of exposure right so um that's the most important thing is to get the child out of that house to a place that has uh has well not necessarily out of the house but either renovate the house so that it's safe um and the lead is is covered up or removed um or get the child out of that house to another house depending on their situation and what what can be done um and so sometimes it's a relative's house sometimes if they if they have Housing uh, assistance, then the the housing assistance people will will help find them a new house and they put them at the top of the list to help find a new house because of the the lead exposure. Um, and then, um, but then usually the usually the first thing we do is is they talk to the landlord or if they're the homeowner, try to see if there are ways that they can address the lead in the home and fix it um, so that the kid can still live in the same same place. Um, and then other than that, there's not a lot of treatment other than watching it um, and making and monitoring, making sure it doesn't go higher, um, the only uh, treatment we have is is our medications that we use, but it, they only work uh, effectively when the lead is above 45. So, um, so it's only really effective when the lead is very high. Um, so for those lower levels, when you have someone with five or 10 or 15 or 20, or even 30, um, the medicines don't help and you really just have to wait for the body to get rid of the lead on its own. And monitor and make sure it doesn't go higher.
0: So, will any of the
2: damage that's been done
0: reverse on its own? Or
2: so, so no. We generally think that the damage once it's done is 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 permanent, um, and and that is again why it's so important to try to prevent this before before it happens. Um, you know, in any given child, it is particularly hard to say. What damage was done from the lead and, and it does seem that kids with lead poisoning have different amounts of damage um, and and we don't quite know why, but they have different parts of their memory or their attention affected and, and everybody's a little bit different. And it probably depends how much they were exposed when they were exposed in their developmental process, but. But we don't often know, oh, okay, this kid would have gone to Harvard and now they're gonna go to, you know, just, uh, you know, not go to college or not graduate high school or something like that. Um, And we we can't tell that because uh, you don't, you only have the child in front of you and you only know how they're developing. Um, We do know that it means there, if you look at groups of people, groups of kids exposed to lead, groups of kids not exposed to lead, those that are exposed to lead are more likely to have those problems. Um, But it's really hard to say on an individual level, oh, your kid's gonna have trouble in X, Y, and Z. You really just have to say, we have to make sure and monitor that child, make sure they get the help that they need if any troubles uh, show up, if any developmental problems show up.
0: Well, lots and lots of good information. Thank you so much to Dr. Travis Hobart. He's an assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate who also specializes in public health. He's also the medical director of the Central Eastern New York Lead Resource Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
3: Laura Carroll from Washington, D.C. writes about food, travel, and fairy tales. She sent us a unique take on grief and how to handle it in her prose piece, Recipe for Lemon Cupcakes. One, take your grief. Form it into a small ball in your hands. Two, zest a lemon or three or five. There are so many in your mother's kitchen and you have to do something with them. They can't just molder in the fridge. Three. Chop the lemons and put them in a saucepan with sugar and water. Boil, stir, simmer, stir more. It will eventually turn to marmalade. Four, add your grief to the marmalade. It's already bitter. It can take it. Five, measure out your dry ingredients in a bowl. Mix and set aside. Six, beat up defenseless eggs and butter and sugar until light and fluffy. Add vanilla extract and lemon zest. And beat again. Seven. You forgot to preheat the oven, didn't you? Turn it on now. Eight. Add the dry ingredients to the wet ingredients in batches, mixing thoroughly and scraping down the sides with a spatula after each addition. Nine. You have a cupcake tin somewhere, don't you? Find it, along with the leftover cupcake papers from several Halloweens ago, the ones with skulls. Ten. Spoon the cupcake batter into the tin until each papered cup is half full. Carefully place a spoonful of marmalade in the center of each cupcake, then cover with additional batter. 11. Bake for 20 minutes at 350 or until a toothpick inserted in the center of a cupcake comes out clean except for the marmalade. 12. While the cupcakes bake, raid your parents' liquor cabinet. Pour yourself a glass of the single estate cognac that your father never had the opportunity to drink and bring the limoncello to the kitchen. 13, beat up another defenseless stick of butter to make the frosting and add more powdered sugar than you think the butter can hold. Keep beating it until it's mostly incorporated. Then add a liberal dose of the limoncello and watch the alcohol smooth out the frosting as you continue to beat. 14, remove the cupcakes from the oven, allow to cool. 15, improvise a pastry bag from a Ziploc sandwich bag. Pipe the limoncello frosting onto the cooled cupcakes. 16, share the finished cupcakes with your assembled family. Everyone agrees they are delicious. No one comments on the bitterness of the marmalade inside.
0: This has been Upstate's Health Link on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on Healthlink on Air, we share stories from professional caregivers on the front lines during the height of the pandemic. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at Healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase Healthlink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.